welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Let me tell you a story to kind of give you some context to the parable we're about to read. Right around the year that Jesus was born, in that beginning time, the Jewish people gathered together in Jerusalem, as was their habit for the the festival of Passover. So Jews from the entire nation would descend upon Jerusalem on their most holy of times to remember, to worship, to celebrate the Exodus. And this was all required, of course, by the law of God. So they had to be there in addition to just having this week-long festival. And that particular year during the Passover, in the temple area itself, the holiest place in the entire nation that you could be at the holiest time of the year, a bloodbath occurred. And over 3,000 Jewish worshipers were killed by soldiers under the command of a guy named Archelaus. And then Archelaus, after these thousands of people are killed in the midst of worshiping their God, orders that Passover is over, despite what the Bible tells you, and you are all going home. There is no celebration this year. Now, this was something that would be embedded into the cultural mind and history of the people. And what had happened was King Herod had recently died. Remember, he's at the very beginning of the Jesus story. And in his will, he had stipulated that this guy, Archelaus, who was his son, would then become the king after him. But before he was actually legitimately declared to be king, he had to travel to Rome. Since they were under Roman occupation, in order for him to get kind of the official seal, like you are the king, he had to go and see Caesar himself in order to be told and to have his hands placed upon him. Well, this bloodbath that we just talked about occurred before he had been officially installed as king. And so when he travels off to Rome to be appointed as the king, the Jewish people who have had a taste of what it's like for this guy to be king get together and they say, we've got to stop this somehow. And so they send a delegation of 50 people, 50 guys out to see Caesar and to personally appeal to him, please, Caesar, do not make this guy our king. Can you see what just happened on our most holy of days? Thousands of people have been murdered. Can you just set up governors over this system instead of allowing Archelaus to be king? And so while Archelaus is fighting in the courts for his right to be king, there's a rebellion back in Jerusalem against Roman rule and against Archelaus's authority. And eventually, Archelaus comes home to Jerusalem and he is declared king. And so what does he do when he gets back? Well, he cleans house, right? So he removes the high priest. He brings swift punishment in a way I can't describe because this is church, not HBO. But anyone and everyone who rebelled against him was Game of Thrones, like completely taken care of. Now, fast forward about 30 years, and we have what we're about to look at is this parable. And Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 19 are on their way to Jerusalem. Again, it's the time of the Passover feast. And as they approach Jerusalem, the disciples are all asking and talking about and are very excited because they think that Jesus is about to take his throne, that he's about to declare his kingship, to throw his hat, so to speak, into the round. 
And actually, the next scene right after our passage is the triumphal entry. If you've ever read that, he's riding on the donkey. All the people are proclaiming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So his disciples firmly believe that Jesus is about to set up his kingdom immediately, to throw off Roman oppression, to set up a new system, a new uh, kingdom where they are actually the governors in charge. And so Jesus tells them a parable as they approach Jerusalem about the kingdom of God, to teach his disciples what the kingdom of God is going to be like, and also to teach us today. So please, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. If you're using uh, ESV, it's on page 878. Those are the Pew Bibles. As we, and as we read this parable, keep in mind, and I'll, I'll throw some hints, but keep in mind this story in the backdrop of Archelaus as it would be in the minds of those who were going to Jerusalem for Passover. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Again, eight, page 878, if you're using a pew Bible. So while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Does that sound familiar? So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. And a minus is about three months wages. Each one of them gets a minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Again, remember Archelaus. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given authority and he had given money in order to find out what they had gained from it. And so verse 16, the first one came and said, Sir, your mina, the one you gave me, has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. Nice. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I do not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. These are the words of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, teaching us about the kingdom of God. If you believe them, if you're thankful, say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. (laughs) All right, let's look at the parable and we'll get into it and it will get much heavier and, and, and difficult. All right. So first there's the man of noble birth that goes off to a distant country, right? To be installed as king and then return. And, and Jesus is clearly, if you know the history, which we all do because I told you, of the Archelaus story, 
It's clear that's the template that he's used. And as they're on their way to Passover to talk about a new king, to be using the exact same template would bring all sorts of images to their minds. But in the parable itself, who is this king? Who is the person in the parable that is going to be set up as king? Well, it's Jesus, right? Whenever a pastor asks you a question, just say Jesus. And we have to say you're right. But Jesus is, is these two versions. Jesus is the king who has come, and Jesus is the king who is coming. He is both already king, and he is the king who is going to return one day. At the very beginning of our passage, verse 11, Jesus' disciples said that they were expecting that his kingdom was going to appear at once, that Jesus would be in Jerusalem receiving his kingship and establishing his kingdom in every single aspect. And instead, Jesus says, hey, remember Archelaus? I know you do, because you probably had a relative that was killed by him. But do you remember that story about how he had to go off and get his authority from Caesar and be established as king, and then later he would come back? Same deal with me and my kingship. So verse 15, the man of noble birth was made king in a distant country. And Jesus is our king, and he is already king. Get that clear. He's already the king of us in this world. And he has been made king off in a distant country, right? A distant country of where? Canada, right, exactly. <laughs> no, in the, the heavenly realms, this other dimension. Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 21 describes it. Christ, when God raised him from the dead, so Jesus is raised from the dead by God, and he's seated at his right hand, where? In the heavenly realms, in the spiritual dimension. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, he is established. And then, don't miss this, the scripture says, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Not only now, Jesus is king now, but also in the age to come, he is coming again. Jesus has been made king now, in the heavenly realms, in a distant country. And we sing sometimes about how he's coming back again. Verse 15, the man of noble birth was made king in a distant country, and then he returned home. The kingdom of God is here now. Jesus is king now. He has authority over our lives, every aspect of it now. He has promised that he will be with us until the end of the age, Matthew chapter 28. And yet, anyone who's been in this life long enough knows that his kingdom is not fully here, that our tears have not been wiped away that there are aspects of the kingdom that are yet to come, and that when he returns as the king from the heavenly realms, that far-off country, from being appointed king, he will make everything right. Acts 3.21 says it like this, he must, Jesus must remain in heaven, in that far-off country, until the time comes for God to restore everything. And in the meantime, between him being appointed and made king as he was lifted off the cross and the time that he comes again and sets everything right, there is this in-between time that we live in. And for the disciples, they thought that in-between time was like this. And for us, 2,000 years later, we were like, whoa, that meantime is a little bigger than we thought. But regardless of whether you see yourself in that time slice, we are to be stewards and servants of the king until he comes back again. And in this parable, we read about three different categories of what people do in that meantime before Jesus comes back again. And they are the faithful, the fearful, and the enemies. And so 
Those are the three that we look at today. And as I read, ask yourself, where do I fall in into these categories? So the first are the faithful servants. And these are the first two folks that you read about. Each one, and by, by the way, I don't know if it's like a Carmel thing, but some, a number of people corrected my sermon in the first service um, because they said the math was wrong, and then I proved that it was right. So if you have math questions, um, this... I am using a different, like if you're looking at the, the parable of the 10 pounds, this is different. This is Luke. Okay, anyway. So each guy is given one minus, which is three months wages. So each one gets one, and then they come back with different results. And so the first one produces 10. Now I'm going to be really embarrassed if the math is wrong. <laughs> okay. So the first one gets 10 more. So he had one. This is what the Bible says. Had one. And he brought back 10. And according to my math, that's a thousand percent return. Okay? One to 10. Is that right? I'm getting some nods from some academic looking people. <laughs> um, and I don't play the stock market like Luke does, but um, <laughs> he was showing me the other day on one of our walks uh, look, this is where I sold my stock. And then it went down from there. And I was like, oh, you're amazing. Um, <laughs> but I asked him, and he said it was not a 1,000 percent return. So, that is an amazing return, right? And the second one has one mina and then produces five more. That's a 500% return. Again, not good with stocks, but that sounds nice. Um, when the king returns and establishes his kingdom, he comes back and sees how well everyone does. He takes the one that did best and he puts that person in charge of 10 cities. He sets him up in a new kingdom, a new rule, a new authority, and says, you're going to be a governor, basically, over these 10 cities. That person was entrusted with very little, respectively, you know, when you compare that, just three months' wages. And now, because they took the risk and invested it and did well, he puts them in charge of 10 cities. And he puts the second servant, who was faithful and took risks, in charge of five cities. And you notice he doesn't get mad at the second servant, like, hey, I bet that, and I was just thinking this the other day, it was that guy with the second service was like 500% return. Yes, I'm going to impress the master. And then the first guy gets up and is like 1,000% return. You're like, oh man. But he doesn't punish the second servant like you didn't do as well. But they are both uh, rewarded based on their faithfulness and their pro productivity. They each get different rewards, right? One gets 10 cities, one gets five cities. For those of us who are faithful, servants until Jesus the King returns. We are basically called in this parable and in many, many other places in the Bible to take risks, to be risky with what he has given us until he comes back again. We are to take risks with what we have been given. And friends, we have been given so much more. If we look at our lives and the things that we have, much, much more than three months wages to get by on. I know a missionary and some people were sharing some of their other missionaries afterwards, but I know a particular missionary who decided that she wanted to go and serve in a city in Africa where you could count the number of Christians on your hand. You're not allowed to publicly be a Christian. And so before she went there, she had to learn the language and go to language school and learn Arabic. And then um, she had to have a profession that would allow her into the country because Christians aren't allowed there. So she learned to be a physical therapist, and um, that would give her some opportunity to talk with people. She had to go around to multiple churches and, and raise up a bunch of money in order to pay for her because they weren't going to pay her to, to go and be a physical therapist there. It was a nonprofit thing. And she did all of these things, and every day she risks her life just by living in the city, 
but she goes beyond that and actually tries to find ways in which she can bless people and have faith conversations because she's seeking to demonstrate and announce the reign of God, and she risks everything. What's interesting is when we take that and apply it to our own lives, friends, the truth is that you are actually missionaries. If you have been called into God's kingdom, it is for a purpose and for a reason, not to just say, yay, I got called, done. You were called because you are to be a missionary. And the good news is you don't have to go to a language school. You already speak the language of Carmel. (laughs) You speak the language of the neighborhoods, the places that you work. You already know the best ways in which to demonstrate and to proclaim God and Jesus' kingdom. You don't have to go find a new profession. You've already been provided for abundantly. God has given us way more than three months' wages to get by. And the call for us is to be faithful with what we've been given, to take risks every single day as missionaries, as we find ways to bless people and as we find ways to both demonstrate and announce the reign of God, that the kingdom of God is here and that it is coming. We have to find ways to say that with words, And we have to find ways to demonstrate that with our lives. But take those risks. Be like the faithful servants and take the risk with the relationships that you've been given. Take the risk to speak truth in the face of fear. Take the risk to bless people with resources that you have been given, not knowing how it's going to end up. Take the risks to spend your time blessing others. God's people, over and over and over, if you read this thing, God's people come across as a very bold, risk-taking people with everything that they have and everything that they are, regardless of what situation that they are in, whether it's in Carmel or whether it's in Africa, they take risks with what they have. We should long to hear in our heart of hearts when the king comes back again, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 26, by the way. He says, I tell you, everyone who has more will be given. The more faithful you are now with what you've been given, the more responsibility you will have. I don't know what that's going to look like in the age to come. Some of us may produce a thousand percent return on what we have. Some of us 500%. Some of us maybe less. It may be that the people you see on a regular basis in front of you um, have very little responsibility when the kingdom comes, and that some of you who only God sees the way in which you're using his investment in you are in charge of very, very much. I've, I've done some personal thinking about it. You know, how faithful have I been? Because you have to ask yourself those questions. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to be in a van down by the river if I get in at all. <laughs> I'm kind of relying on people like you. Like, so I go around and preach and be nice to people. And I'm like, when you have 10 cities, maybe you could give me a place to stay in the, ki- in the kingdom. Take risks with what God has given you. Your resources, your time, your relationships, your positions of authority in the places that you live, work, and play so that you're not stuck in a van down by the river with me when the king comes. Because listen, friends, the king is coming. We proclaim it, we believe it, we sing it. We want to be faithful. Now, the second category, You have the faithful servants. The second category are the fearful servants. So if being a faithful servant is risking it all, everything that we have and everything that we are to announce and demonstrate the kingdom of God in the places that we live, work, and play, then an unfaithful or a fearful servant is the one that risks nothing, that is completely safe and lives a safe and comfortable life 
and abstains from stepping out because they are afraid. That's what the third servant says in verse 21. He says, I was afraid of you. The third servant did not risk anything, but instead he took his mina and he rolled it up in a piece of cloth and he kept it hidden away. When the king returns, some of us, and some of us here today, will say to God, to Jesus, I was afraid of you. I didn't trust. I was too scared to live out my life for you. I bought a home. I hung out in my pool. I cut my grass. I played golf. I went fishing. I kept waiting for the right time to have a conversation with someone about Jesus, but I just never did. I was afraid you wouldn't be there or that I might suffer some sort of injury. I took what you gave me and I held onto it very tightly. I passed some of it on to my kids. I know you are a hard man, a hard God, and so I did my best not to break any rules and to hold on tight to what I could in this crazy world until you returned. Like the servant in the parable, some of us associate with the king, but we really, really don't know him or what he expects of us. Some of us don't see God, our father, our king, as someone we can trust in and that will catch us when we risk everything. In this parable, the king calls the servant wicked, which is the same word for evil in the Lord's Prayer. This isn't, so this isn't just a matter of someone trying real hard and just not doing well. It's, it's unfaithfulness driven by fear. In the parable of the talents, that's the parallel to this one in Matthew, this, this same servant is the worthless one that's thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, living a fearful comfortable life without taking risks for the kingdom is an external sign that internally that person doesn't really relationally know their king. They know about him. They know things they have heard. They maybe have even read about him, but they don't know him. Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 about how the actions that we have in this life, the things that we do in the in-between time, including the risk we take with what we've been entrusted, are like fruit, which demonstrate the internal reality of whether or not we really know him. So Jesus said in this passage that was read, read earlier, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree, listen to this part, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then this is the part she read. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that day when the king comes back, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Or as our parable says, you wicked servant, you evil servant, you, I never knew you. You never knew me. It's why you lived a life of fear. It's why you lived a life without taking any risks for my kingdom with everything that I gave you. The one who has nothing, even what he has, will be taken away. So the faithful, the fearful, and then the last one are the enemies. 
These are those who reject the king outright, right? These are the ones going back to Archelaus that were part of the delegation that went and said, not only are we going to be, we're not going to be fearful servants, we just don't want this person as our king at all. And at the time of the parable, Jesus was probably referring to Jewish leaders and how they rejected him as their king. And today in our own time, you don't have to look far to find people who openly outright are enemies of our king. So what are the three things that happens? When the king returns, the faithful servants are rewarded with more responsibility in the new era, in this new established kingdom and reality. When the king returns, the fearful servants who seemed like they were supporting the king, but they didn't really know him and were too fearful to take risks with what they had been entrusted, are removed from relationship with the king. And when the king returns, it does not end well for the enemies of the king. Remember Archelaus. Now, as with many of Jesus' parables and teachings, we have to ask ourselves, which, which of these am I? And maybe you, you overlap into some of these categories. Am I the faithful servant taking risks with what I've been entrusted with and relying on the grace of the king when he returns? And am I a fearful servant, afraid of God, trying to do everything right, lest he is angry with me when he comes back? Or am I in open rebellion against God? Wherever you are, regardless of your category, the king is coming. He's coming back. Faithful servants, if you're one of those, Take risks with what you've been given in announcing and demonstrating the reign of God. If you are, feel like you're more of a, that fearful servant, stop being afraid of God. Come and sit at his feet and learn who he really is as you put your trust in him. And then enemies of God. Jesus died so that we would have peace with him. We would be reconciled. And so the invitation to you is to come home. Which one are you? Because how you respond to Jesus the King will have eternal consequences. He has already come, and he is coming again. Who will we be in the meantime? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is mind-boggling to think about how much you have entrusted to us. Relationships, positions of authority and influence, financial resources. God, we pray that even now that you would transform our hearts into being risk takers for your kingdom, that we would put everything we are and everything that we have on the line for opportunities to proclaim with words and actions that your kingdom is here now and that you are coming again. And as we enter into this time of worship where we make our offering, let us reflect not only how we do this in the places we live, work, and play, but how we do it together as one body, as one family, one church here in Carmel. We thank you and we praise you. We ask for your spirit in abundance. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website, at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.